Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Multi-platinum R&B singer R. Kelly was sentenced in a Brooklyn federal court today after a conviction of sexual abuse last September. But he won't be serving his time in a New York jail. The Biden administration kicked off its first sales of oil and gas leases on federal land. And environmental groups are pushing back. We'll tell you what they're doing. Released documents show that critical race theory is being taught at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. A retired general tells us why he's concerned about the military's future officers. A U.S. Senate candidate wins the Democratic primary in South Carolina despite a controversy triggered by a leaked phone call on sleeper cells, drug money and more. We got the recording. An FCC commissioner calling on Apple and Google to ban the TikTok app over concerns China is accessing Americans' data. We talked with the commissioner himself. Novak Djokovic advanced to the third round at Wimbledon with a straight sets win. But after only three days, he's one of just four top ten players remaining. We'll see what happens to his fellow competitors. R&B singer R. Kelly was sentenced today to 30 years in prison. Kelly was convicted last September of sex crimes against underage girls. U.S. District Court Judge Ann Donnelly imposed sentencing in a Brooklyn federal court. Kelly was found guilty after a five-and-a-half-week trial. He is amongst the most prominent people convicted for sexual abuse. Several of the women were underage teenagers at the time of the abuse and testified that they have persistent mental health problems. Kelly, who has been in jail since July 2019, has repeatedly denied the sexual abuse allegations. His defense lawyers said he didn't deserve more than 10 years, the mandatory minimum. He also faces federal charges for child pornography and obstruction. A trial on those charges has been set for August. And now to energy reserves. Today, environmental groups sued the Biden administration over oil and gas lease sales. The lawsuit was filed immediately as the White House kicked off their first oil drilling lease sales on federal lands. This comes as the Supreme Court is expected to rule on another high-profile case this week, a ruling which could limit the government's power on environmental regulations. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports. For the first time since taking office, the Biden administration today has launched oil and gas lease sales. The sales will cover around 219 square miles in the western states. The lease sales are not expected to immediately impact the country's oil supply since it does take time for the companies to begin producing oil. This oil and gas lease sale is a display of President Biden going back on his campaign promise to suspend oil and gas drilling on public lands and waters. Environmental groups were quick to push back, filing a lawsuit in a D.C. federal court. The 10 environmental groups are suing on the claim that the Bureau of Land Management is violating the law by ignoring the climate consequences of oil drilling. This comes as the Supreme Court is expected to rule this week on a case revolving around environmental regulations. Yeah, simply put, the Obama administration created something called the Clean Power Plan, and that was put out by the EPA. And there's a question about whether that was in, within the authority of the EPA to produce that plan. And that plan in West Virginia essentially shuts down coal production. So this is critical to the West Virginia economy and critical to the question of how much authority do regulatory agencies have to issue regulations as opposed to having laws come from Congress. The challenge against the EPA started under the Obama administration. Then President Barack Obama launched a program to fight climate change. The $33 billion per year so-called clean power plan would have required states to implement plans to reduce carbon emissions. Under the rule, companies would face scrutinizing reviews by the government before they could open new facilities or make changes to their existing facilities. The justice's decision is expected to be released Thursday as the Supreme Court wraps up its term. I'm pretty excited about it because the administrative state is actually very out of control and, and the subject or the cause of a lot of our problems in the United States. And if we rein them in, if we make Congress take responsibility for the laws that are passed, we'll see a lot less regulation from the administrative state. So I think the potential here is huge.
If the Supreme Court rules in favor of West Virginia, this would stall environmental regulations aimed at replacing fossil fuels. Congressional Democrats would then have to work even harder to write and pass new laws that would help the White House reach its climate goals. One big change here is that the lawmakers would have to debate in public about the costs and consequences of environmental regulations, some of which are already being imposed. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And staying on the Hill, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer announced that he'll step down from the nation's highest court on Thursday. President Biden's appointee, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, will replace him. Breyer told Biden in a letter today that his retirement from the Supreme Court will be effective tomorrow, June 30th at noon. The Supreme Court will hand down all remaining opinions ready during this term, beginning at 10 a.m. tomorrow. The justice wrote that, quote, it has been my great honor to participate as a judge in the effort to maintain our Constitution and the rule of law. Breyer was appointed by former President Bill Clinton and has served on the high court since 1994. And now to the military. Three retired military officers say they are concerned about West Point Academy, where future military officers are trained. Some of their concerns are mandatory vaccinations and critical race theory being taught at the academy. NTD's Jason Perry spoke with a retired general who signed the letter. Because some universities teach it and discuss it, that's how, that's a Marxist tradition. Retired Air Force Lieutenant General Thomas McInerney retired from the military in 1994. He and two other West Point graduates sent a letter to the superintendent of West Point, alleging that the academy is conducting business in a manner that ignores constitutional law and their sworn oath of office. McInerney was a fighter pilot for 35 years, and he said he once led 54 F-15s on a mission. He said critical race theory is dividing the military, and he's concerned because it's being taught to future military officers at West Point Academy. The fact is, I didn't care what his skin color was in the other cockpits, where he went to school, who his mommy and daddy was, or who he was married to. I cared about performance, the morality of his character. If he told me I had a missile coming at me at 5 o'clock, break left, that's what I did. And so those are the important parts in the military. Judicial Watch, a foundation that promotes government transparency, obtained copies of diversity, inclusion, and equity training materials taught at the United States Military Academy, also known as West Point. One slide reads, in order to understand racial inequality and slavery, it is first necessary to address whiteness. There's a, a great divide in this nation, and particularly in the military. Even today, they are kicking people out of the military if they do not take the mandatory vaccination, even if they have legitimate reasons not to. The full vaccination deadline for Army Reservists and the National Guard is June 30th, 2022. The military is currently facing a recruiting shortage and the Army only met 40% of its recruitment goals so far in 2022. The Army will now allow men and women to join even without a high school diploma or GED. We reached out to West Point Academy, but they didn't provide a comment at this time. Jason Perry, NTD News. And in the primaries, South Carolina state lawmaker Crystal Matthews has won the Democratic nomination for U.S. Senate. That's despite being embroiled in a controversy after Project Veritas leaked a recording of her discussing illicit campaign activities. Here are the details. South Carolina U.S. Senate candidate Crystal Matthews won the Democratic primary runoff on Tuesday. She will face off with Republican incumbent Tim Scott and independent candidate Larry Adams Jr. in the November election. Her victory came two days after undercover journalism group Project Veritas published a leaked phone call she had with a prison inmate. But we need some secret sleepers. Like, we need, we need them to run as the other side, even though they for our side. Where the f*** is my black people with money? I don't care about no dope money. Give me that dope boy money. Right. Where the f***ing dope, where the duffel bag boys? Get you fighting with somebody from your family that don't even know you donating to my campaign. Matthews reacted to the leaked audio on Tuesday, admitting that the recording was real. But she said it was taken out of context and she didn't know the call was being recorded. Um, it should also not be lost on anyone that this doctored audio from 
February, leaking this close to the runoff is nothing more than a political hit job. This was a three-way call where a local activist patched me in saying she had someone she was really excited for me to meet. Um, I did not know him, nor was I aware that he was an inmate until after the call was over. The state representative is facing backlash for calling on people to take down Republican yard signs, infiltrate the Republican Party, and using illicit drug money to fund her campaign. Matthews responded, saying that, quote, sometimes when black folks talk to black folks, we talk in a certain way in private. Okay. I was having a private conversation. So you can't, you can't say I'm encouraging people to do any of these things because I was not talking to people. I was talking to one person, one person, and I just told you it was not literal. It was more tongue-in-cheek because we were having what I call a black-black conversation. It's still unclear why Matthews was discussing politics with the inmate or how Project Veritas obtained a copy of the call. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Turning now to an open letter in which FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr asked both Apple and Google to remove TikTok from their app stores, saying that Beijing is harvesting swaths of sensitive data from it. NTD's Faye Quarter has more. FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr sent an open letter to Apple and Google asking them to remove TikTok from the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store. He referred to TikTok as a sophisticated surveillance tool that harvests extensive amounts of personal and sensitive data. We're talking everything from search and browsing history to keystroke patterns uh, to biometric data, including what we call face prints, which could be later fed into facial recognition technologies, voice prints. Uh, draft documents that are set on your uh, clipboard. Carr tells NTD a new report showed leaked audio of TikTok and ByteDance officials saying China has access to all this data, despite what the company says. There's really no limit on how uh, Beijing could, could use it uh, to pursue uh, nefarious goals, everything from you know business, industrial espionage, foreign influence campaigns. The FCC is currently led by four commissioners, of which Brendan Carr is one. The chairwoman is currently Jessica Rosenworcel. TikTok was the most downloaded app in 2021, beating out both Instagram and Facebook, and at the moment is the 31st most visited website in the U.S. In 2020, um, it used TikTok to encourage Americans to engage in violent protests, it's been glorifying drug use. Gordon Chong is the author of The Coming Collapse of China. Chong sees three reasons why China wants the user data. First of all, more data, more users means that ByteDance, the parent, is more valuable. Second, um, I think that China can obtain uh, information that would be used to compromise TikTok users. I know that, yeah, it is silly of dance videos, but they can learn things about people. And with other data that Beijing assembles, it can get a much better picture about an individual. And then the third thing is that in general, um, Beijing uses the data to feed into its artificial intelligence networks. FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr isn't certain if Apple and Google will even respond to his letter, but says it's only one part of a broader government effort. Members of Congress, both in the House, the Senate, Republicans, Democrats are coming together um, slowly seeing the national security threat that, that is posed by TikTok. TikTok hit 1 billion users worldwide in 2021, and it's expected to hit 1.8 billion by the end of 2022. Can a state's terms of business include a requirement not to boycott Israel? The 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled last week that they can. The court says Arkansas can refuse to do business with companies that won't sign a pledge guaranteeing that they won't boycott Israel. The Arkansas Times challenged the law with the support of the ACLU, saying that requirement is unconstitutional compelled speech. But the court says this time it's not about free speech. Anti-Israel boycotts are part of the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions movement, also known as BDS. It promotes boycotts, divestments, and economic sanctions against Israel. To understand more about the court's reasoning, yesterday I spoke with senior counsel at the Lawfare Project, Jared Felitti. Jared, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, the U.S. Court of Appeals has ruled in favor of the state of Arkansas. 
saying that it can require that businesses that do business with it do not uh, boycott Israel. Could you explain some of the court's reasoning here? Well, sure. The, the court's reasoning, and first of all, this is a very important decision. It comes from the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. It's the highest court that has considered this issue. So this is really a seminal case on the issue of anti-BDS laws. And the court's reasoning is that anti-BDS laws do not affect speech. They do not implicate the First Amendment. They regulate conduct, which is, in this case, discriminatory conduct targeting Israel and, and the Jewish people, and it's not speech. So the First Amendment protections do not apply. Justice Jane Kelly wrote in dissent that supporting or promoting boycotts of Israel is constitutionally protected, and the Arkansas Times says it is a matter of free speech. Well, I think it's, it's an interesting argument, and it's, it's easy to argue that anything is speech. Unfortunately, it's not—we we have seen that speech is not the same as conduct. Uh, and this justice mistake, misplaces reliance on the argument that engaging in expressive conduct is somehow protected. But that's not the case here. We're not talking about limiting the ability of the Arkansas Times or anyone else to make statements that it wants to about BDS. What we're talking about is limiting conduct, engaging in BDS, which is discriminatory. So, so the justice is misapplying reasoning in, in the dissenting opinion. How common are these laws, such as what the state of Arkansas has about um, not boycotting Israel? Well, anti-BDS laws are prevalent in about 30 states. Uh, they're on the agenda for additional state legislatures as well. So this is a growing groundswell of state legislatures that are stepping in to say that this is discriminatory and unacceptable targeted discrimination. It really, what BDS is, is national origin discrimination. What, what it is, it has the effect of discriminating against the Jewish people. So th this is why legislatures are stepping in to, to protect the rule of law and to disallow discrimination through commercial action. And, and we see this in 30 states, and we're seeing an increased groundswell of support to have this as federal legislation as well. The movement to boycott Israel has been called by some critics um, illegal commercial discrimination and racism. Could you explain a little more about how it's different to other forms of boycotting? Well, here it's worth noting that the boycott targeting Israel is unlike any other boycott. We, we simply don't have these kinds of boycotts against the whole country or against the whole group of people. That's not something that we see. We see Israel and Jews singled out for criticism and disparate treatment based on identity. And that is the main reason how this differentiates from other types of boycotts. The, the, the important part to note as well is the effect of BDS. The effect of BDS is it has for years created hostility in a hostile environment targeting Jews on college campuses, in the workplace, and even on the streets. We see this with protests in New York City that target Jews for attack, all under the guise of BDS and supporting and advocating for discrimination. Now, you've said that this case is a significant case. What do you think should happen next? I think that what should happen is more states should be emboldened to pass anti-BDS legislation and to enforce it. Seeing this decision gives them good support and legal analysis for why anti-BDS legislation is constitutional, why it doesn't violate the First Amendment, and why it is essential to safeguarding the civil rights of the Jewish people. So I, I expect to see more states passing this kind of legislation and more states arguing successfully in favor of enforcing it. Jared Felitti, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. The Arkansas Times publisher Alan Leverett says the outlet anticipates they will appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. And on religious freedom, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle came together today to call for religious freedom around the globe. What challenges is the world facing and what is being done to address them? NTD's Iris Tao has more. Key voices in Washington and around the globe are speaking out on the right to believe. The United States has a deep and abiding commitment to protecting and promoting religious freedom for all people everywhere. The International Religious Freedom Summit in D.C. this week also brings together lawmakers from across the political spectrum. From Speaker Nancy Pelosi. It's a foundational human right. To Republican Senator Marco Rubio. The United States has a critical role to play in shining a light on religious freedom violations worldwide, and we're working to make that happen. And among those countries violating religious rights, China was called out the most. 
citing the bipartisan Forced Labor Prevention Act that just took effect last week. Senator Rubio says the U.S. cannot continue turning a blind eye to abuses by the communist regime. This new law will change that, helping to ensure that Americans are no longer complicit in the Chinese Communist Party's genocide of predominantly Muslim ethnic groups in Xinjiang. And former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo urges world leaders to see through the propaganda and recognize the abuses happening in totalitarian states. Behind walls of prisons and persecuted before our very eyes in places like China, Iran, Cuba and North Korea are tens of thousands of people whose only crime is to worship God in their own way. Others shed light on what's happening behind those prison bars. Think of forced organ harvesting the Falun Gong practitioners and others. And David Alton, a member of the UK Parliament, calls out China for forcibly harvesting organs from prisoners of conscience. The London-based China Tribunal unanimously concluded in 2019 that this practice has been and is still happening in China on a significant scale. But China also on the United Nations Human Rights Council. It's a sick joke. This is truly extraordinary that we have allowed these things to occur. On Thursday, the summit will feature sessions specifically focused on China's forced organ harvesting and its persecution of the Falun Gong spiritual group. Survivors and families of the persecuted will be sharing their stories. Iris Tao, NTD News. And more on election news, 12 candidates endorsed by former President Trump secured their party nominations in the primaries Tuesday. Although two were running unopposed, it was a clear demonstration of Trump's influence in the GOP. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the results. Colorado, Illinois, New York, Oklahoma, Utah, Mississippi, and South Carolina all held primaries on Tuesday. In addition, there was a special election held in Nebraska for a House seat. Former President Donald Trump's influence was on full display in the Republican primaries. Out of Trump's winning picks was Colorado incumbent Representative Lauren Boebert in the House primary for District 3. And in Illinois, incumbent Mary Miller wins the GOP nomination for the 15th Congressional District. Incumbent Representative Darren LaHood took the 16th District nomination with about two-thirds of the vote. And Representative Mike Bost ran unopposed for District 12. Darren Bailey won his party nomination for governor. Oklahoma Trump-endorsed primary winners include incumbent Governor Kevin Stitt, who won with 69% of the vote. Incumbent Representative Frank Lucas won in Congressional District 3, and Representative Tom Cole in District 4. Representative Kevin Hearn ran unopposed in District 1. In Utah, Trump-backed incumbent Senator Mike Lee beat two challengers with over 60% of the vote to win the Republican Senate primary and incumbent representatives Burgess Owens and Chris Stewart won their House primaries. In New York's gubernatorial primary, incumbent Governor Kathy Hochul secured her party's nomination with close to 70% of the vote. Congressman Lee Zeldin won the Republican nomination. Zeldin beat Andrew Giuliani, the son of New York City's former mayor Rudy Giuliani, and two others with over 40% of the vote. Zeldin will face an uphill battle against Hochul in the general election. He will need to win over independent voters that outnumber Republicans in the state, along with Democrats, in order to win in November. Oklahoma's Democratic Senate primary is going to a runoff, with Madison Horn and Jason Bollinger advancing. James Lankford wins the Oklahoma Republican Senate primary. Crystal Matthews wins the Democratic Senate primary in South Carolina. In Illinois' Senate primary, Tammy Duckworth ran unopposed for Democrats, and Kathy Salvi won on the Republican side. Mississippi's House GOP primary runoff for District 2 has Brian Flowers as the winner. Colorado's Republican Senate primary has Joe O'Day beating Ron Hanks. O'Day had 55% of the vote and will face incumbent Democratic Senator Michael Bennett, who ran unopposed, in the general election. In Nebraska's House special election for District 1, Republican Mike Flood beat Democrat Patty Brooks for the House seat left vacant by Jeff Fortenberry. The congressman resigned this year after being convicted on three counts of lying to the FBI. Flood and Brooks will face each other again in November's general election. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And over to the border. Mexico has joined the investigation into the deaths of 53 suspected illegal immigrants found in Texas. 
And the Lone Star State says it will immediately add new checkpoints for trucks crossing from Mexico. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador said Tuesday that 22 Mexicans were identified among the dead, along with seven Guatemalans and two Hondurans. That's according to IDs they found. No news on the rest. These unfortunate events have to do with the situation of poverty and desperation of our Central American and Mexican brothers and sisters. The victims were found on the outskirts of San Antonio Monday, where temperatures topped 100 degrees. A fire department official described stacks of bodies in the trailer and said there were no signs of water or working air conditioning. Lopez Obrador said another factor is the status of the U.S.-Mexico border. It happens because there is also human trafficking and lack of control at the border between Mexico and the United States and inside the United States. Lopez Obrador's comments echo what Texas Governor Greg Abbott said after the tragedy. Abbott criticized Biden's policies, tweeting, These deaths are on Biden. They're a result of his deadly open border policies. The Biden administration has rolled back some Trump-era policies, including the border wall and the migrant protection protocols. Meanwhile, the White House says the border is closed and puts the blame on human traffickers. In a statement Tuesday, Biden said this incident underscores the need to go after the multi-billion dollar criminal smuggling industry, preying on migrants and leading to far too many innocent deaths. Authorities charged two Mexican nationals Tuesday in connection with the deaths. They were charged with possessing firearms while in the United States illegally. Authorities located the men after responding to the incident. Mexico's president said he'll meet with Biden in Washington in a couple weeks, and immigration will be a central issue in their discussions. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. And in Atlanta, as violent crimes plague neighborhoods, a group of volunteers is working to turn their neighborhood into its own city. NTD's Arlene Richards talks to volunteer chairman Bill White to find out how the process works. If you're not happy with how your local government is running your city, turn your neighborhood into its own city. That's what volunteers in the Atlanta suburb called Buckhead are doing. Volunteer chairman and CEO of the Buckhead City Committee, Bill White, says ever since the mayor voted to defund the police, crime has gotten out of hand. The crime is awful. Uh, we have murder and mayhem, as I say. It feels like we're living in a war zone. He explained the three steps it takes to become an independent city. One, we have to have completed a feasibility study, which we did, that would show that the locale uh, that we're trying to incorporate uh, would be feasible, financially feasible. The next step is to get seven bills sponsored in the Georgia legislature, which they have done. Two of those bills are more important than the others. We have a, a DNX bill that DNXs the locale known as Buckhead from the city of Atlanta. And then we have an incorporation bill, which then reincorporates that area into the new Buckhead city. He said the bills will be voted on by the state legislature in the upcoming winter session. And finally... The third step is that the Georgia legislature has to vote yes to put this on the ballot, uh, which would then go to the governor for signature. However, the committee has one more hurdle to overcome. So the big if is, you know, will Brian Kemp win re-election or will we be dealing with uh, someone else? Um, we, we fully expect the governor to sign the bills once they have been passed. Uh, and our, our chances, we believe, are much, much better with Governor Kemp. We reached out to the Atlanta mayor's office but didn't hear back by broadcast time. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, two drug traffickers carrying 150,000 fentanyl pills were arrested in Northern California. But a court order released them shortly after. And Novak Djokovic advanced to the third round at Wimbledon with a straight sets win. But after only three days of play, he's one of just four top 10 players remaining. NTD's Dave Martin explains the lack of competitors. <music> Two 
Two men from Washington were arrested and released in California last week. They were allegedly carrying 150,000 fentanyl pills. 25-year-old Jose Zendijas and 19-year-old Benito Madriguel were arrested during a routine drug traffic stop on Friday. According to the Tulare County Sheriff's Office, the two men had been carrying 150,000 fentanyl pills with an estimated street value of $750,000. In an update on Monday, the Sheriff's Office said they received a court order releasing both suspects from custody on their own recognizance. Tulare County Sheriff Mike Boudreaux strongly disagrees with this decision, citing concern for the public's safety. He said that the justice system in California is failing and was infuriated when the court commissioner signed the release order. The sheriff said that the two men did not show up to their scheduled court date on Tuesday and that detectives are currently trying to locate them. Earlier this year, the Drug Enforcement Administration issued a warning about the rise in fentanyl overdoses. And in 2021, there were over 71,000 deaths reported. Experts have said that this number is steadily increasing every year. Prices are increasing throughout California. One city council member blames the state's policies for the rise in housing costs. Let's hear more on why he believes building more is actually hurting affordability. Eric Peterson, a city council member of Huntington Beach, told California Insider's CMAC Karami that the more affordable housing projects the state builds, the less affordable housing becomes. Well, once you start building just one type of product, then that destroys the affordability because these people are charging $3,000 a month or $4,000 a month, and the people that used to have $1,200 a month rents said, hold it, why are we charging $1,200 when we're three blocks from the beach and they're up Beach Boulevard four miles? So they start raising and it just, it throws the balance off. A 2020 study by the UC Berkeley's Turner Center for Housing Innovation found that increasing wages, cost of supplies, development costs, and demand are all driving up the price of housing units. And according to the LA Times, some affordable housing projects cost the state nearly $1 million per apartment to build. Peterson says these high costs are also due to California's construction regulations. There's all these different things uh, whether it be Title 24 and electrical code or, or, you know, just environmental things that they want. I think if there weren't as many regulations that we had to meet as, you know, contractors, uh, it would bring down the cost of building. It's still going to be high in California, but it would bring down those costs um, to where uh, maybe make it a little more affordable. But Peterson says the push for affordable housing is not simply to build more housing units. In his city, affordable housing projects have become part of the city's green energy mission. We have a regional board, SCAG, the Southern California Association of Governments, and they used to deal with just traffic. Well, they've come to the conclusion that we need more housing, and the reason is not because of a lack of housing, but if you actually read their plan, it's to meet greenhouse gas emissions. He says fewer out-of-city commuters mean lower gas emissions. So it's, it's going back to that green agenda, and it's been going on for years. And when I was actually on SCAG, there was only a couple of us that would vote against it. But um, I don't think we should be building housing <laughs> based on greenhouse gases um, or commute times or anything. Despite the growing cost of building more units, cities across the state are passing new affordable housing proposals. The state is also allocating about $1.4 billion of the new $300 billion budget to the state's public colleges and universities. The goal is to increase affordable student housing for incoming students. Cynthia Kai, NTD News, California. To watch the full program, find California Insider on YouTube or Epoch TV on the Epoch Times website. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. 
at Wimbledon, top-seeded Novak Djokovic rolled to a straight-sets win over Thanasi Kokonakis to advance to the third round. But the six-time Wimbledon champion is one of just four players ranked in the top 11 who are still playing. Djokovic, along with fourth-ranked Rafael Nadal, fifth-ranked Stefano Tsitsipas, and seventh-ranked Carlos Alcaraz are the only players from the top 11 left in the draw. Top-ranked Daniel Medvedev and eighth-ranked Andrei Rublev were banned for being Russian. Second-ranked Alexander Zverev is out with an injury, while 11th-ranked Matteo Berrettini withdrew after testing positive for COVID-19. Meanwhile, 6th-ranked Kaspar Ruud, 9th-ranked Felix Auger-Alassime, and 10th-ranked Hubert Hurkacz have already lost. Should favorites Djokovic and Nadal keep advancing, they would meet in a much-anticipated final. On the women's side, though, a bit of controversy. Harmony Tan, fresh off her shocking upset of Serena Williams, canceled her Wimbledon doubles match the next morning, angering her doubles partner Tammy Korpach. Korpach posted on Instagram saying, she just texted me this morning. Let me wait here an hour before the match starts. The match would have been Korpach's first doubles event at any of the four Grand Slams. In college basketball news, retired coaches Roy Williams and Jim Calhoun are among nine new entrants to college basketball's Hall of Fame. Williams and Calhoun will be joined by fellow coaches Lon Kruger and John Beeline and one of Calhoun's four players, Richard Hamilton, who are among the nine being enshrined. Williams coached at Blue Blood programs Kansas and North Carolina, winning three national titles at the latter stop while advancing his teams to nine total Final Fours and winning 18 regular season conference championships. He retired in 2021 with 903 wins overall, the third most all time. Calhoun, meanwhile, coached at Northeastern for 14 seasons before going to Connecticut in 1986, where he turned the forgotten school into a powerhouse program. Calhoun went just 9-19 his first season before eventually winning three national titles. He ended his career with Division III program St. Joseph in 2021, retiring with 920 career victories. The induction ceremonies will take place this November. In NBA news, the New York Knicks have traded center Nerlens Noel and guard Alec Burks to the Detroit Pistons, clearing nearly $20 million in salary cap space. The trade is an effort to sign free agent guard Jalen Brunson, according to a report by ESPN. Brunson made a name for himself in the playoffs, averaging more than 21 points a game and carrying the team in the absence of all-star guard Luka Doncic. New York had to throw in a pair of second-round picks plus $6 million cash to entice the Pistons to make the trade. The Knicks will reportedly now be able to make an offer of four years and more than $100 million to the 25-year-old, whose father is an assistant coach with the team. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, the NATO summit kicks off in Madrid. Sweden and Finland are formally invited to join NATO after Turkey removed its objections. The two Nordic countries can now move ahead in the next step of the process. And a top British official warns the Chinese Communist Party that any attempt to invade Taiwan would be a catastrophic miscalculation. She says the West should start arming the self-governing island right away. That and more when we return. NTD's Capital Report. It's about getting answers. Cutting through the fog of politics. It's about your questions and our chances to ask. What is the net impact of the American Carson Graves? Thank you for joining us. We're speaking to those in power to find out what does this mean for the people. We're here so you are in the know. And now to Madrid, where the NATO summit kicked off today. President Biden and other heads of state discussed top issues facing the world's largest military alliance, including Russia's invasion of Ukraine and China's growing influence and assertiveness. Sweden and Finland were formally invited to join the alliance today, after Turkey lifted its veto ahead of the meeting. The three nations agreed to protect each other's security.
NTD's Eddie Aitken has this report. NATO invited Sweden and Finland on Wednesday to join the military alliance in one of the biggest shifts in European security in decades. After Russia's invasion of Ukraine pushed the two countries to drop their traditional neutrality. NATO's 30 allies also agreed to formally treat Russia as the most significant and direct threat to the Allies' security. We will demonstrate that NATO's door remains open by inviting Finland and Sweden to join our alliance. On Tuesday, after four hours of talks just before a NATO summit began in Madrid, Turkey, Sweden and Finland signed a memorandum. As NATO allies, Finland and Sweden commit to fully support Turkey against threats to its national security. This includes further amending their domestic legislation, cracking down on PKK activities, and entering into an agreement with Turkey on extradition. Finland and Sweden overturned decades of neutrality to apply to join the alliance in mid-May. Finnish President Sauli Nanisto welcomed Turkey's decision to lift his veto. He said the deal was a very necessary agreement, though Finland had to make some compromises. We do not have any need to make changes because of this uh, agreement. And what comes to, to uh, deportations and such questions, uh, we can well follow our present uh, uh, practice. Finnish Foreign Minister Pekka Havisto told reporters the breakthrough in the talks with Turkey came over a coffee break. break and as always during the coffee break, great ideas come up and, and, and then in the end, towards the end of the meeting, it was easier to come to the conclusion. Turkey said it would renew requests for Sweden and Finland to extradite individuals it considers terrorists after the countries reached a deal. Swedish Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson said her country would continue to follow Swedish and international law and European Convention in all extraditions. I mean, what is in this statement is uh, uh, something that uh, Sweden is already uh, doing. It's that we will not support them in a way that could be a threat to uh, Turkey's internal security, like providing arms or uh, financial support. And this is not anything that Sweden is doing today. Anderson also said Sweden would not extradite Swedish citizens and only those who conducted terrorist activity could face extradition. Even with a formal invitation granted, Finland and Sweden probably might need to wait for up to a year to become a member, as NATO's 30 allied parliaments must ratify the decision by leaders. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. Russia or China? Which country is the bigger threat to the free world? The U.S. says China. NATO points to Russia, as we've seen, but says Beijing is still on its radar. For the first time, the alliance is labeling China a fast-growing competitor rather than a trading partner, even though it still engages with the economic powerhouse. Let's dive in. With the months-long war happening on Ukrainian soil, NATO has formally labeled Russia as the most significant and direct threat to the Allies' security. That's according to a summit statement on Wednesday. It makes clear that Russia's, Russia poses the most significant and direct threat to our security. NATO, short for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, is an intergovernmental military alliance between 30 member states from North America and Europe, with the U.S. at its head. They recently agreed on NATO's first new strategic concept in a decade. That's its master planning document. Russia, previously classed as a strategic partner of NATO, is now identified as NATO's main threat. The planning document also cited China as a challenge for the first time. That sets the stage for the 30 allies to shift Beijing's classification from a benign trading partner to a fast-growing competitor in everything from the Arctic to cyberspace. But unlike Russia, uh, NATO leaders said Beijing is not an adversary. China is uh, substantially building up its military forces, including nuclear weapons, bullying its neighbors, and threatening Taiwan. Investing heavily in critical infrastructure, including in allied countries. Monitoring and controlling its uh, own citizens through advanced technology. And spreading 
uh, Russian lies and disinformation. China is not our adversary, but we must be clear-eyed about the serious challenges it represents. On Tuesday, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said the alliance needs to engage with China. We don't re regard China as an adversary, and, uh, and China, of course, is soon the biggest economy in the world. Um, we need to engage with China, for instance, on issues like, like climate change. It matters for the whole, the whole energy market. But NATO did voice concerns about Beijing's close ties to Moscow. But we are disappointed by the fact that China has not been able to condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that China is spreading many of the false narratives uh, uh, about NATO, uh, uh, the West, and also that China and Russia are more close now than have ever been before. But at least they stated very clearly, both China and Russia, that they were against any NATO enlargement, and that is the first time China so explicitly has in a way had a strong opinion directed against uh, NATO and NATO uh, um, uh, enlargement. NATO diplomats told Reuters that the United States and the United Kingdom want to use tough language, but France and Germany are more cautious. As the world's second largest economy, Beijing has attracted concern because of its apparent support of Moscow amid the Russia-Ukraine war. In addition, China's military ambition continues to grow in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait, threatening navigation freedom for ships and Taiwan's territorial integrity. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said competition between the United States and China does not mean confrontation or conflict. British Foreign Secretary Liz Truss used the NATO summit in Madrid to warn the Chinese Communist Party against invading Taiwan and alert the West not to become strategically dependent on China. Here's a report from NTD's Eddie Aitken. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss has issued a warning to China that any attempt to invade Taiwan would be a catastrophic miscalculation. Speaking at the NATO summit in Madrid, Truss said Beijing was in danger of making the same mistake that Russia made in Ukraine. We need to think very carefully about the messages we're sending to President Xi. We've seen increased collaboration between Russia and China, and we know that China is watching Ukraine closely. They're expanding their military capability, and they're extending their global influence. And one significant thing today is that we will see in the new strategic concept put out by NATO specific reference to China. Truss reiterated her call for Western allies to arm the self-governing island, which China has long claimed, to ensure it has the means to defend itself in the event of an attack. I do think that with China extending its influence through economic coercion and building a capable military, there is a real risk that they draw the wrong idea which results in a catastrophic miscalculation, such as invading Taiwan. And that is exactly what we saw in the case of Ukraine, a strategic miscalculation by Putin. So this is why it's so important that the free world work together to help uh, ensure that Taiwan is able to defend itself and to stress the importance of peace and stability across the Taiwan states. Taiwan has been self-governing since nationalist forces fled there in 1949, after the communists took control of China. Truss said it was very worrying that China has recently backed Argentina's claims to sovereignty over the Falkland Islands and made comments about NATO. She said Western nations need to develop economic alternatives to China to ensure they do not become dependent on the way some countries are on Russian oil and gas. This isn't just about hard security, it's also about economic security. I think the lesson we've learnt also from the Ukraine crisis is the increased dependency of Europe on Russian oil and gas contributed to a sense in which uh, Russia felt enabled uh, to invade Ukraine because it, they knew it would be very difficult uh, for Europe to respond. So we also need to learn that lesson, I believe, uh, with China of not becoming uh, strategically dependent on China and, in fact, making sure that we have strong alternatives. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. Coming up, a dog in a Chilean park is now a green superhero in a comic strip. He's entrusted with defending the environment and he has an unusual superpower. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News.
Man's best friend has become a green superhero at a park in Chile's capital. He's working to keep the park clean with his superpower, collecting garbage. Let's take a look at what he's been up to. Sam the Border Collie appears at least three times a week in San Diego's Metropolitan Park. He joins his owner on walks there, picking up trash from green areas along the way. His image, complete with an orange vest, has become famous in an educational guide cartoon. This became much more widespread than expected, and it has spread very well on social media. There are many good comments about the comic, how it came to be, and about the campaign communicating the idea of cleaning up trash. Catalina Aravina turned the five-year-old Kali into a star in the comic titled Sam, the Parkamit Superhero. His owner, Gonzalo Chiang, said the idea was sparked by the amount of trash they found on their usual walks. The artist who made the illustrations portrayed Sam quite well. She got to capture much of who Sam is, and the message itself contained in the instruction manual is the correct one, because these are not places to come and dump trash. The park is home to a zoo, several hiking trails, and a gondola railroad. They launched an anti-litter campaign last year, urging people to switch from plastic cups to glass. That's under a garbage classification and educational program. Visitors like Sam have inspired us to accelerate this education process and structure this garbage classification. But also, in adopting this work routine, in this way of looking at Santiago's daily life, seeking to become more and more cautious when caring for the environment, taking care of our forests and our parks. Sam's image has been used as the face of a park care campaign. It tells visitors to take their trash away or use one of the 40 recycling sites throughout the park. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.